Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk episode 101. I'm your host, Chris Case. We're incredibly lucky here at Fast Labs to be able to talk with some of the most intelligent physiologists, coaches, athletes about training and sports science generally on a weekly basis. We glean so much insightful information just by having access to them on a regular basis. Through Coach Connor's countless hours of dedicated research to keep up on the latest science, we're then able to synthesize all of this information into what we hope are digestible conversations, helping you to better understand the science that propels cycling performance. Occasionally, we like to step back and summarize the things we've learned, often prompted by the many questions we receive from our dedicated listeners. And today is just such an occasion. The last time we did this type of show was episode 68, The Big Picture and the Three Types of Rides You Should Do. Today, we look at the big picture when it comes to training in zones or ranges versus training a target number. Because what number is best? We talk about training zones constantly. If your zone two is 160 to 190 watts, then is training at 190 watts better than 170 watts? Is going harder better? Stay tuned for those answers. Next, we'll address four fundamental principles of human physiology that relate to training in ranges, specifically aerobic and anaerobic thresholds, fat burning capacity, and maximal lactate clearance, all in an effort to maximize your training experience. Finally, we take an opportunity to remind everyone that humans aren't machines. Perhaps that's stating the obvious, but sometimes it's good to remind ourselves that we are all individuals and we have different needs and goals for our riding. Today, we hear from a vast array of former Fast Talk guests, including Colby Pierce, an incredible time trialist, coach, and bike fitting expert, and soon to be podcast host. Dr. Steven Seiler, one of our favorites and one of the world's leading sports physiologists. Sepp Kuss, pro cyclist with Jumbo Visma. Tom Skunsch, pro cyclist with Trek Segafredo. Dr. Andy Coggin and Dr. Stephen McGregor, leading exercise physiologist. Hunter Allen, a leading cycling coach. And Sebastian Weber, lead scientist at Inside and an elite cycling coach in his own right. Home, home on the range. Because we're talking about ranges. Anyways, I'm the Lone Ranger. Let's make you fast. Good morning, Chris. How you doing? I'm good. We're now officially in the 100s. We are. We are. I had to go and change all our templates because we named them all <laughs> FT and then the number, and it's a pain to always type the mm. one now. So yep. now they're FT1 and then you add on. Excellent. Efficiencies. A big moment. <laughs> <laughs> I got to change a template. I'm excited. Nice. I know you love your templates. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> so today we are uh, taking a step back to look at a big picture topic. We've received a lot of emails and questions about this particular subject. And it comes down to, should I train at a specific number or should I be training within ranges? And a lot of people have written in saying, you know, I my, my zone two is range, ranges between say 160 and 190. Doesn't that mean I should be training right at 190? Well, we're asking that question, or the other question is, should you ch sometimes train at 190, sometimes train at 170? These ranges are ranges for a reason, and that's what we want to get into today. 
So we are getting into the whole is harder always better concept. So yes, people are getting their zones. You need to stay in your zones. But if, as you said, your zone is 160 to 190, isn't 190 better than 170? Because it's harder. Uh, particularly because we live in the era of tracking your training stress and 190 doing a couple hours at 190 you generate more training stress than doing a couple hours at 170 people like those big numbers bigger the number the better you've done that week right sometimes that isn't necessarily the case no it's not always necessarily the case but it's when we do these summary episodes we kind of watch what's the trend and the questions that we get and for some reason this is what do you say? We got four, five, six emails right at in a least, row asking asking this very question of here's my zone. Shouldn't I be sitting right at the very top end of that zone? So look, there are times where that's completely appropriate, but we want to discuss why that's not always best and why. So I don't actually call them zones when I work with my athletes. I call them ranges. And it's a range for a reason. When my athletes ask, what part of that range should I work in? And my answer is always anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a range for a reason. Mm-hmm. You, to me, you are, so I think of it as training energy systems. And within that range, you are training that particular, you know, take a step back. This is one of those all else being equal. So we design a ride. It's of a certain length, volume, everything plays mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. But once you've designed the rest of the ride, how long it's going to be, what's the particular work you're going to do, you're given a particular range. And to me, as long as you're doing the same work, anywhere in that range is fine. And I will usually tell my athletes, you know what? Target the middle. Mm. Don't always target the edges. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of what the show is going to be about today is why actually targeting the edges is is sometimes is not always going to get you to where you want to be. I can understand the temptation to see a range and say, okay, I'm just going to basically simplify this and stick to a single number because that simplifies things. Perhaps it makes it easier when you're out on the ride to remember that number. Perhaps when you're cross-eyed, if you're doing uh, intervals or something, it's just, oh, that's my number. So I, I do get that temptation. But what we're trying to explain is that with a little bit more thought, you can get more out of your training. And also, if sometimes you have to think about a number and not a range, then maybe the more appropriate number you focus on is in the middle and not at the edge. Right. And I just want to emphasize this because we won't go back to this for the rest of the show, but this is all else being equal. So remember that if you're training in your zone two range, 30 minute ride is a recovery ride. A six hour ride in your zone two range is a good hard endurance ride. Right. So when we're talking about the ranges and why you want to target the middle, why, you know, within the range, it's, we're saying it's all the same. That's after everything else has been designed. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to talk about the impacts of volume and interval work and all that sort of stuff. We're just talking once the ride has been designed, where's the best place to be in the zone. Excellent. Before we dive into why we feel it's important to look at the whole range and not just a target or specific number, let's share a clip from episode 72 where we talked with, in many ways, the originators of power zones, or levels as they prefer to call them, 
Dr. Andy Coggin, Hunter Allen, and Dr. Stephen McGregor. They share their thoughts on what zones are and aren't about. But anyone who thinks that there's magic in training at a particular intensity, uh, you know, just doesn't understand. Well, first, they don't understand how the body responds to exercise, but they also don't understand what, uh, you know, Hunter and I and then what Steve joined in have been trying to educate people are about for the past two decades. Again, I come back to they're called levels and not zones for a reason. They've always been called levels. <laughs> and I've, I've, railed, I've railed against this, you know, if you're not as uh, been around as long as I have. You may not remember the era in which people were discouraged from going too hard in the off season because they will, you know, blow up their capillaries. <laughs> and you go out and ride. You go, yeah, sticker, sticker. I hear you, Steve. And you go out and ride with friends. They'd be adamant. It's like, no, I have to, you know, get off my bike and walk up this hill because I'll blow up my capillaries. Uh, you know, that's ridiculous. That's not how people ride bikes in the real world. So if you overly constrain somebody's power output because of the way you're prescribing training, all you're doing is making the training less specific. You go back to the original system that I put out there back in 2001 now, um, it refers to the average power either for the uh, interval, if we talk about interval type work, or it refers to the average power for the entire workout if you were talking about you know, just a steady state endurance ride, or if it's something like a tempo session, well, you know, you warm up and you cool down, but you focus on what was the average power over the hour and a half in the middle. Uh, but that doesn't mean that power remains within that range at all times. In fact, you know, the exact opposite is what you really should be aiming for because we don't go out in time trial everywhere, uh, at least not master our races. And this actually goes back to what you were talking about with regard to the reasons for zones and, and you know, kind of the problem with zones is I, you know, Andy kind of cited a, a, you know, a popular notion from back in the day, which seems like only yesterday, but which actually was, you know, 15 years ago, um, blown up capillaries. Uh, but also I, I can think back farther than that, and, and which has kind of still been around for a while, is the notion of no man's land, right? That, that was a particular zone to stay away from. So there's zones you want to target and zones you want to stay away from. And actually, in actuality, most of what a lot of people would consider no man's land is actually the place that a lot of us spend or racers spend a fair bit of time actually riding their bike. So it's a zone that you or, or it's it's a an effort level that you actually have to be in at some point, whether it's in training to race effectively or racing effectively, right? Avoiding it like the plague, like it's going to cause some type of undue damage is, is really a misguided notion. And, and so the other aspect of, again, quote unquote levels or zones is that they, they give a standardization, a framework for people, because in the case of the book, when it first came out, um, without that framework, it's really difficult to describe things to people on a generally applicable basis. We can say generic basis, but it's, a generic, it's generally applicable. I like the fact that in your eye levels, you said it's, it's, it's not like you suddenly go from 290 to 291 and you're training different energy systems, that it's a continuum. Right, yeah, it comes back to it. It's a continuum. What is the magic number of subdivisions that is not too many as to be unwieldy, uh, but is enough to at least try and pay lip service to the actual complexity? My original answer was seven. Uh, and, and I think that gets to the 
when when the when the right. inventor of the levels doesn't even know how many levels there are, I think that kind of attributes the level, the, the magnitude of importance he ascribes to the actual levels themselves. Again, it's it's a practical convention to convey notions um, that are more standardized, but everything happens on a continuum. And whether it's nine or 15 or three is just uh, a practical consideration more than anything else. And yeah, it's getting to be a lot, isn't it? Yeah, agreed. And back to that, you know, back to my original point, you know, why do we have these things? Because it really gives clarity. It, it helps us as coaches and also as athletes to, you know, again, quantify when we're there, when we're in the right area of training to train that specific system. Let's get back to talking about energy systems. So let's talk a little bit more about those energy systems that you spoke of. That's the way you like to think about this when you're designing a plan and when you're training yourself. It's all about the energy system. So maybe give us a brief overview of what you mean by that. I, I just like that term. The truth being, if I ever sat down and made a list of what all the energy systems are, uh, you would very quickly look at that and go, well, that's actually, you point to some things and go, yeah, that's definitely an energy system. You'd point to other things and go, well, that's not actually an energy system. That's a different mm-hmm. type of adaptation. And mm-hmm. I would say you're fully right. Uh, I just don't like to say to my athletes, energy systems plus fuel metabolism plus sure, muscle sure. fiber adaptation plus, you know, give the proper sentence to fully explain it. So it's just kind of nice to say, let's talk in terms of energy system. Right. Uh, and these I, things are fluid. Yes, it yeah. is all very fluid. And my bias comes to the fact that technically my, my master's, my major was bioenergetics. Mm-hmm. I basically spent my whole master's studying how we generate energy, energy systems. So there is a bias here and I get it. You're going to listen to this and go, wait a minute, that's not an energy system. Sure. You're right. We're just using a term somewhat inappropriately, mm-hmm. uh, most of the time appropriately. The key thing to remember when we're talking about these energy systems is, well, we like to think harder is better. Often with an energy system, it's getting trained just as well anywhere within that zone. And as a matter of fact, there are cases, and we're, we're going to go through a couple of examples, where if you get too hard, you're not benefiting that energy system as much. So one of the things we're going to talk about is maximal lactate clearance. Mm -hmm. You would think, oh boy, that happens right at your anaerobic threshold. Not actually the case. Your your optimal point for for lactate clearance is about 95% of lactate threshold. And it starts to decline once you get to lactate threshold. So there's a case of where harder is not better. And I remember having this discussion when... We devised my training plan for the hour record and we did a lot of this type of work and it was always here's the number let's take a percentage of that and work just below that yep and and we had neil henderson confirm that that was the type of training that rowan dennis was doing when he was preparing for the hour record so this is the type of stuff that um that a lot of people are using for those hour-long efforts or those time trial specific training efforts out on the road we remember we had sebastian weber on the show and he talked about this when you're trying to train that vla max when he was talking about training time trialists he said he has them do a lot of big gear work Mm -hmm. just below that anaerobic threshold and maybe we throw that clip in right here you need to trigger those a little bit more fast twitch fibers so to speak 
and they have a higher recruitment threshold. So you can't only go easy, right? We tried that about almost 15 years back, right? I developed a test to measure VLMX using ergometer tests. We use muscle biopsies to validate this test. And then we trained athletes because the questions come up, okay, how do we train that? And the first idea was, yeah, just go easy, right? Just don't touch your glycolysis. The problem is now you're not recruiting the muscle fibers which are responsible for VLMX. So long story short, your intensity needs to be a little bit higher, more towards what you might call sweet spot or sub-threshold or something. And then you need to stay there for some good amount of time repeatedly or um, continuously. That's that's what's important. So the intensity can't be too low, should be a little bit sub-threshold. You know, you can, you can do some things like lowering the cadence, like which increases the torque, which then again, recruits more FT fibers if you are a sub-threshold. Now, you're saying sub-threshold sweet spot. Are you saying pretty significantly below or just below threshold? But that depends on how, how, how much time you can invest, right? If you're going for a six-hour ride and every half an hour you want to ride sub-threshold for 30 minutes, then you have to be more below threshold, right? And if you're only doing this for two hours, then maybe 90% of threshold is okay. If you want to do this for five hours, then you maybe need to go at 80 or 75% of threshold, right? So it depends obviously for how long you can do this and how often are you doing this. So I remember we, uh, we had uh, Dr. Inigo San Milan on the show a while back, and he was talking a lot about this, about that recruiting the, those fast twitch um, two B fibers to work more aerobically. And he was big on training right at aerobic threshold or VT1 or you know, there's a variety of different names for it, but right at that point where, where lactate starts to, to, to rise up. So around kind of 1.7 to, to two millimoles on, on a lactate curve. And he was a big fan of just riding there for four or five hours if you can do it, because that's really going to get those fast twitch muscle fibers working aerobically. So it sounds like you're saying if you have the time, that's a great way to do it. If you don't have the time, then then higher intensity, closer to threshold, lower cadence can be really beneficial. Am, am I hearing you right? Mm, not entirely. First, like first increase of lactate. Phew, that's very tough because when you do this statement, you immediately bond yourself to 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 a certain testing protocol which is fair like this this power output at which lact which is the power but at which lactate increases is tremendously different if you do one minute increments or 10 minute increments no that's fair and to that credit when we had a new go on here part of what we were talking about was that his testing protocol and he uses a 10 minute testing protocol because he is huge on the aerobic side okay but anyway, so assuming for me, this sounds like this sounds like a quite low intensity. And as I as I indicated, we've done that, and we've done that looking and doing muscle biopsies, and we've done that looking at adapt adaptations in single muscle fibers. And for some people, it works. But if you have a reasonably high amount of those FT fibers, then it may be doesn't really work. And one part of the mechanism is that you can stay lower with an intensity because over the time, like you said, you've brought up something like five hours, your ST fibers fatigue, and then you would right. also recruit more FT fibers. But that then you are back to, you know, being in the need to really ride those five hours. And I doubt that this is really applicable for most of your listeners out there. So 
so again, for for what we did uh, there with a couple of amateur athletes, um, over 30 looking at specific adaptation and single muscle fibers, if you go too low intensity, you have a fair chance that it's not working for a big part of your group. If you go a little bit higher of intensity, then you have okay. a very good chance that it almost works for everybody. And therefore, I would say, if you really want to lower VLMX, don't stay too low. And we've seen it um, also like from a lot of users of, of, of the Insight software in the past months. It seems to be like a common misunderstanding people still have, like saying, oh, yeah, yeah I don't want to decrease VLMX, I just ride easy. And then they are surprised that four months later, VLMX may be even increased. Let's get back to the show. Let's be even more specific. What are some of the energy systems you're talking about here? So we've discussed this before. There, there are many, but I'm, I'm really going to focus on four here. Uh, part of the reason I want to focus on these four is there's a lot of different zone models out there. There are simple ones like the Dr. Seiler has this three zone model. I've seen zone systems that have nine different zones. Mm-hmm. When you actually look at our physiology, there's only a few key breakpoints. So a lot of these zones are just Base, these zone models are based maybe on experience, maybe on what athletes do, mm-hmm. but you can't point to something physiological and say there was a change there, something was right. going on right. there. So when you're talking about if you did a lactate test or a ramp test and we were looking at what was going on physiologically, here's the, the key breakpoints. Obviously, there's the two thresholds. There is your aerobic threshold mm-hmm. and there's your anaerobic threshold. Aerobic threshold is that point where if you are on a doing a lactate test, you start seeing that rise in lactate. So a proper lactate test, you would have a few stages where your, your lactates are going to stay low, depending on your, your level, somewhere around 1, 1. 1.2. You're not going to see lactate rise at all. Uh, aerobic threshold is, is after you start to see that rise. So there is a, a physiological, a clear physiological change that is happening. And there's a lot of explanations. Again, this is, we, we don't want to go too deep into the weeds. We've done episodes on this. This is kind of the summary. But one of the beliefs, uh, I believe in this, one of the things that's happening when you hit that aerobic threshold is now you're starting to recruit those two A fibers. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're, you're starting to bring in fast twitch muscle fibers. Another thing, so literally in our last episode, when we were talking with Dr. Seiler, he brought up the fact that when you are below your aerobic threshold, going out and doing a long ride, you're not going to see any sort of cardiac drift. Mm-hmm. And I'll do the quick explanation because we brought up cardiac drift a ton. But that's basically if you're riding at a steady wattage, uh, if you're experiencing cardiac drift, you would see a rise in your heart rate. Uh, so below aerobic threshold, you're not going to see that. Whatever your your Heart rate is at a given wattage is going to be pretty much the same at the start of the ride and the end of the ride, assuming you're properly hydrating. It's not insanely hot outside and other factors. Above aerobic threshold, you're going to start seeing cardiac drift. Obviously, the other key breakpoint is that anaerobic threshold. And again, a while ago, we had a whole episode talking about thresholds and all the different terms for it. Mm-hmm. There are many. I personally really like MLSS, maximal lactate steady state, because again, it's, it's looking for a physiological breakpoint, something where f- something physiologically changes. 
And MLSS, as the name says, is the point where you can no longer maintain homeostasis. You might be able to go for a certain length of time, but it's going to take a toll on you. You're going to see a lot of changes and you can't sustain it. Mm -hmm. So MLSS below that, even though it can be hard, it's considered sustainable mm -hmm. for, for an extended period of time. It's also the point where you start really relying on anaerobic metabolism. So you, you, it's not like all of a sudden you're now using anaerobic metabolism below MLSS, below anaerobic threshold. You're starting to bring in some anaerobic metabolism, but now there's just that point where you're starting to really bring in those two X fibers that really don't do a lot of work aerobically. You're now generating a lot of anaerobic energy. And like I said, you are on a very short fuse at this point. Yeah. And that, that's, I think, that paints the picture of these being fluid and also overlapping. Right. That's key to understanding all of this is that these things are not w black and white, a division between one and the other. They're, they're, they overlap and you can be hitting multiple things at the same time and you are often doing that yep. if not always doing that this is kind of this really fun interesting contradiction that we've gotten questions about because people get a little confused by this and there's actually a review article that i really liked called lactate threshold concepts how valid are they mm -hmm. and most of what i was just explaining is summarized in this review another one called exercise intensity thresholds identifying the boundaries of sustainable performance by uh, Dr. Keir. Those would be the two that I would say kind of explain a lot of this and explain this interesting contradiction where, like you said, on the one hand, it's very fluid. And we mentioned this in the previous episode. When physiologists talked about lactate threshold, they're talking about that entire range between that aerobic threshold and that anaerobic threshold or MLSS. Mm -hmm. uh, because... As we said, aerobic threshold is the point where you start to see the rise in lactate. Hence, you've now hit a lactate threshold. Mm -hmm. Yet, there are still these, these key breakpoints where they go, even though this whole thing is fluid, there's these two points where it's clear below this, mm -hmm. one thing's going on. Above this, another thing is going on. Right. And they have an impact. The last thing to bring up about that anaerobic threshold that's been mentioned multiple times in, in many studies doctor and sorry as usual we'll put up a bunch of references on the website for people to check out dr seiler wrote a little bit about this but above that anaerobic threshold above that mlss there is a disproportionate increase in sympathetic nervous system activity uh so I, I could go deep into the weeds in this, but basically what all these, these studies say, and in particular, the one I would recommend is uh, one called, it's an older one, plasma catecholamines during endurance exercise of different intensities as related to the individual anaerobic threshold. How's that for a name? Uh, and that was in the European Journal of Applied Physiology back in 1994. But the gist of it is there is a toll that you take when you go above anaerobic threshold. There, there are certainly some sympathetic stress when you're between those two thresholds, but you get above that anaerobic threshold and all of a sudden you're really hitting the system. There is going to be a price to pay that you don't pay below. Hence the reason we've often said you got to be careful about that work above anaerobic threshold. 
you just can't do it every day because because of this sympathetic stress because of the the sort of damage it's doing to your system and and the increased need for recovery after this sort of work again those references will be up on the website fastlabs.com slash fast talk 101 for this episode now here's two other good physiological things to point out uh, one of these has uh, we, we mentioned earlier, and it has confused a lot of our listeners in the past. It is confusing, so we've gotten a lot of questions about this. But while well, we talk about that anaerobic threshold, and there's key things that happen there, and it's often also referred to as, you know, a lot of people when they think about lactate threshold, that's what they're thinking about, mm-hmm. that higher, what, where do you time trial? But as we said, there is a point where your body is optimally clearing lactate so that whole system is revved up at its highest that is not at your anaerobic threshold mm-hmm. that is a little below so right, right around 95 percent. and we've had sebastian weber say this on the show we've had rob pickles say this on the show who was a physiologist who worked at, at, at bch for years with with uh, dr pruitt and many of them have said, if you're really trying to train that, if you're a time trialist, if you're a breakaway rider and you're trying to train that ability to sit right around your threshold and go hard for long periods of time, actually training at this just below point is optimal. Tom Skynch, a rider with Trek Segafredo and somebody who's worn the polka dot jersey at the Tour de France, Talk to us about his training and why he doesn't apply a harder is better approach. Some of it does come down to what we were just talking about, not building up too much sympathetic stress. Depends on the type of interval, just because the sustained efforts, the long ones that you keep on going forever, it's very important to keep an eye on that number and not go over. Just because as soon as you go over, your body turns to a different kind of intensity and builds lactic acid and you won't be able to sustain it. Whereas if you have shorter intervals, which are like two minutes, five minutes, then it's not necessarily about the actual power number, but it is in that regard, as soon as you go too far down, it's not worth doing it. But sometimes it's the higher you go, the better where, but at the same time, not for me, I never, I, I'm I'm almost never going flat out in training, just because I ha- I like to keep my race legs for the races, mm-hmm. but and uh, just doing those uh, intervals at a specific power number like saves your legs a little bit and doesn't let you go too far into the red. So maybe it's worth asking the question: What's the mechanism? by which training at 95% slowly pushes up that threshold so that you can increase it? Or does it not push it up? It just helps your body's ability to clear. So again, I don't want to go too deep into the weeds because um, it's not lactate that shuts you down. Mm-hmm. You know, there, There's that old concept that we produce lactic acid, and that's been disproved. We don't produce lactic acid did a whole episode on that for anybody who, who gets upset by my saying that, but no, lactic acid can't exist in the human body in physiological quantities. We do produce lactate and we simultaneously shunt it out of our cells 
with acid, hence you see that decrease in, in uh, pH, well, you are also seeing an increase in lactate. So because our bodies are aware of that, they have sensors. So even though it's not the lactate that's shutting you down, your body does sense the increase in lactate. It does sense the increase in, in, in or decrease in pH. And at a certain point it says, this is going to damage you. So I'm going to put the, the brakes on and make you slow down. So the more you can train that ability to clear the lactate, the less of a response, your, your body's basically going to say, okay, don't have to set off the alarm bells yet. And I'm going to let you go a little bit harder. I'm going to let you go at this intensity a little bit longer. So training that clearance correlation between your body's ability to clear lactate and your body's ability to manage that acid buildup. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that your body does to deal with the lactate is other tissues can take it up. So when you're using anaerobic fibers, they're pumping the lactate out. Other tissues in your body take the lactate up and use it as fuel, right. in particular your heart. Mm. When you're going hard, your heart almost relies exclusively on lactate for fuel. Muscles that aren't working will take up the lactate for fuel. Your liver will take up the lactate, convert it back to glucose. Uh, so in order to do this, that lactate has to be sent to these other tissues. This is one of the reasons that you see that optimal clearance a little below threshold, because as you start getting into threshold and higher, your body's trying to push more and more blood to the working tissues. So it shuts down blood flow to tissues that can take up the lactate. Hence, higher and higher intensities, your ability to clear lactate actually decreases. If you're training that clearance, if you're training that ability to shunt lactate to other tissues, you're also helping the body's ability to get the acid out, to disperse it, to get it to places where you, your body can also buffer it and get it out of the system. Um, if the blood flow is just to the working muscles, lactate's going to accumulate there. Acid's going to accumulate there, and you're going to shut down. And for anybody that wants to hear Trevor bust the myth about lactic acid in the body, go back to episode 30. Yeah, that's way back. Way back. The really simple explanation here is, so any acid can also exist in a base form. So lactic acid is the acid form. Mm -hmm. Lactate is the, the base form. You're splitting hairs on this one. You know, lactate and lactic acid are the same thing. It's like, no, one's a base, one's an acid. Yeah, There's actually a very big difference here. Every acid base has a what's called a pKa value, which is the pH at which it exists, 50% is an acid, 50% is a base. The pKa value for lactic acid and lactate is 3.64. That's a really acidic solution. You drop much below 7, you better get to the hospital fast. <laughs> so at physiological pHs, pretty much it's impossible for lactic acid to exist. Mm -hmm. There you go. There's the quick summary. I think there's one more physiological effect you wanted to talk about, Trevor. Yeah, this is actually a really important one to a lot of people because not everybody is training to race. A lot of people are training for fitness to drop some weight. Uh, you are always using a mix of fat and carbohydrates for fuel. 
I will say you will use a little bit of protein, but that's mostly negligible until you start getting into a very fatiguing ride Mm -hmm. where other fuel sources start to be depleted in your body. Sure. We'll tap into the protein, but for all intents and purposes, generally when you're talking about what are your fuel sources for exercise, it's a mix of fat and carbohydrate. At low intensities, you are pretty much relying almost exclusively on fat. And there's literally a curve. You can just look this up online, just do a search for this, and you'll find a hundred different versions. But there is a curve showing maximal fat oxidation rates. Problem is, as you get into those higher and higher intensities, your body shuts down use of, of fat. So it's, it's, it's not like higher and higher intensities, you burn more and more and more fat. Mm-hmm. It's actually, there is a point where you start burning less fat and you just start relying exclusively on carbohydrates for fuel right and the peak of that curve is surprisingly low as Mm. a percent of your vo2 max which is how it's usually expressed because this is measured the the way to measure is with a vo2 max test is right around 65 70 percent of vo2 max Mm -hmm. so that is your good old what what people think of as your your zone two ride Mm mm-hmm so actually the chart I'm looking at is even lower. It's saying 60% of VO2 max. Zone two in a five zone or more model, not in the polarized yeah. zone two. So this would be polarized zone one. Correct. So if you think, you know, most people, we don't, obviously on a bike, you can't measure your VO2 max while you're riding or your VO2, but your VO2 max correlates roughly with your max heart rate. So basically we're saying 60% of your max heart rate. You mm-hmm. do the math, that's surprisingly low. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you have a max heart rate of 200, that means you are maximally burning fat right around 120. 120. So hence the go and ride slow if you really want to burn a lot of fat. Mm. That gets a little bit more complex just simply because if you go a little bit harder, you, you need more fuel. So there's some argument for the, the increased intensity, greater demand for calories is actually going to ultimately burn more fat because even though you are at the moment relying more on carbohydrates, mm-hmm. right. once you're done with exercise, your body's going to try to restock those carbohydrates, rely on fat. So 24 hours later after the ride, you might actually burn more fat at a little higher intensity. Mm-hmm. But if you go out and do super high intensity, yeah, you're relying on carbohydrates. You're not burning a ton of fat. Mm-hmm. So those are your kind of physiological points. I hope one of the things that we got across there is, again, harder is not necessarily better, and you are training different systems at different intensities. Any others you want to bring up? You know, there actually is one other that is is really worth bringing up. Uh, this, this gets into a lot of older research. Um, back in the days when we believed in central versus peripheral conditioning, and, and well, that has been thrown out a little bit, this still applies. One of the biggest training adaptations that we see is an improvement in stroke volume. That's basically just how much blood your heart can pump out sure. per beat. Stroke volume is also surprisingly maxed out at a very low intensity. So it's right around 65% of your max heart rate or or your VO2 max. Now you are still continuing. So this is a great example of harder is not always better. 
if you're trying to improve that particular adaptation, improve your blood flow mm-hmm. or your, the amount of uh, blood your heart can pump per beat, you're maxing out about 65%. You're still doing just as much benefit at 85, 95%. You're just not doing more. Mm-hmm. And you're getting more stress at those higher intensities. Right, exactly. So I've used this a lot as an example, and people always say, "Well, if you're training slow and you're you're getting gains, why not go that that <laughs> 10, 15 percent harder and just get more gains?" And you point right. out, no more gains. It's a dosage thing. It's like you could take 600 milligrams yep. of of ibuprofen, or you could take 18,000 milligrams. Which are you going to take? <laughs> maybe that's a poor analogy but well it makes another, some sense when it when it's looked at as a dosage another good example is back when everybody discovered that caffeine is performance enhancing and they started just mega dosing on it yeah and it is performance enhancing but they've shown basically above 200 milligrams you see no more gains so what you were having was all these people that were getting to the start line taking over a thousand milligrams, incredibly jittery, mm-hmm. paranoid, everything else at all there's, these side, yeah, effects, side effects, they're sweating right. and they're not getting any more gains that they would have gotten at, at 200 milligrams. So this is the same sort of thing. You're going to get the same gains riding 85%, but you're doing more damage. And fewer side effects if you ride at that, at that rate. Lower intensity, right. So that, I guess, gets us into our next part. All right. So with all of this information, this uh, foundational information about the energy systems and these breaking points and things like that. How does someone out there take that information and find the right range to ride in and find the right point in that range to ride at, given their objective for the day? There are hundreds of examples we can give. Let's just give a few. And hopefully this gives some good practical advice as well. So the one I would like to start with is training sustainability because that's of all these emails that we got asking, isn't harder, better. This was the one that we got the most frequently where people are saying, I'm doing that zone two work and there's just, there's always that resistance and and I get it. And and I've dealt with it with my athletes. I dealt with it myself until I had enough people smack me across the head and say, Trevor, stop being an idiot. And those people smacking me were very good, experienced, high-level cyclists. And I went, they're smart. I'm dumb. Maybe I should listen to them. (laughs) So let's talk about training that sustainability, training that endurance system. It is that long, slow. So in in the the Dr. Seidler's three-zone model, zone one riding. If you're using more of a five-zone model, this is what you would think of as zone two. And it is slow. It is easy. So there's that temptation to say, I want to sit right at the upper edge of this. So the reason we gave this whole explanation of these physiological breakpoints is remember that aerobic threshold is a breakpoint. Something different happens physiologically as soon as you cross it. So you can say, I'm going to train right at the upper end of that range or that zone. But the point that we are making is, well, not well, but already below that aerobic threshold, you are maximizing that fat burning. Mm -hmm. You have maximized that stroke volume. Mm -hmm. A lot of the gains that you see don't increase as you get to the higher end of that zone. So uh, this is kind of a hard concept to get, but for the most part, 
training anywhere within that zone two is going to give you basically the same thing, except a slightly, you're going to get a slightly high, lower score on your, your training stress and whatever software you're using. Other than that, mm-hmm. physiologically, it's generally the same thing. But if you sit at that upper edge, if you sit at that, trying to sit right at that aerobic threshold, you are probably going to go over it a lot. And then you are seeing a shift physiologically in what's happening in your body. A lot of these adaptations that you see are going to get equal benefit anywhere within that zone. But when you run that edge, you run a danger of you're actually starting to train different energy systems. There's a different effect on your body and it might not necessarily be what you want. It's not necessarily the goal that you're going for. But wait a second. So I've heard you say many times before, particularly when it comes to dirty Kanza training, for example, um, this is a very powerful ride to train right at that aerobic threshold, sort of get right up to the edge of that range. So what, what, so I do with my athletes have a tighter range. It's very similar to at that other threshold. Uh, I have that threshold range for my athletes to work out, particularly if I'm working with time trialists. So it goes a little below that threshold to, to just slightly above to try to push that threshold up. I have read some research that shows that your aerobic threshold and your anaerobic threshold tend to move together. So if you can push that aerobic threshold up, you might also push that anaerobic threshold up and you can do it with less stress to the system. Mm-hmm. So there is a certain powerful ride and, and we've had pros on the show say that they, they do this periodically, that, that they see the benefits to it. But it's just a tighter, it's taking that zone too and just make, compressing that, it. compressing it. But I still try to keep my athletes below the aerobic threshold. So I set an upper limit in terms of heart rate and basically say, don't go over that. And that heart rate tends to be a couple beats below where I have their, their aerobic threshold. So I'm trying to keep them under. And you're not telling people to do that it's three not times every a week. Ride. Yeah, right. Yeah, and it's, that's, a, it's, a, it's a, think of it as a workout session in a way. It's yeah. not something to be used for every ride, just sprinkled throughout. Yep. So it's, it's a very powerful ride, but it's not every time. So I actually, there's, there's a whole backstory behind this, but I give my athletes what I call LSD rides and LSS rides. LSD rides are most of their endurance rides, and that's anywhere in that Dr. Seiler zone one. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a point. If you're riding at 40 watts, you're probably not getting any gains. <laughs> right. But it's a pretty big range, and I mm-hmm. just basically say anywhere in there, I'm fine with it. I'm not going to get too particular. Uh, I have what I call an LSS ride, and that's that tight range. And mm. it's not like I give my athletes that LSS ride multiple times a week. As right. a matter of fact, mo- the first half of the base, I almost don't give it to them at all. It's a ride that I bring in in the later part of the base and, and at points during the season. Another example is training repeatability. So we talked a little bit about this with Dr. Seiler last week. And this is something that's often underestimated. Uh, but it's that ability not just to do an effort, but to do an effort over and over and over again. Uh, something you hear in, in racing is everybody can get over the first climb. It's who can get over the 10th climb. Right. And that's where you start seeing a lot of the difference in, in the fitness. Dr. Seiler talked about this a little bit last week, but sometimes 
when you're looking at your interval work, going harder isn't always better, especially when you're trying to train that repeatability. Sometimes as you get fitter, let's say you're doing four by eight minute intervals, instead of saying next week I'm going to add 10 watts to it, mm -hmm. which might very well take you into a different energy system, right? add an extra interval. Yeah, now do five, five by eight. eight. Yep. Train the repeatability. So that's another good example of pushing the wattage up, hitting that upper end might not be getting you the gains you want. Maybe keep the power a little bit lower mm -hmm. and just add to it. And as a matter of fact, let's throw that clip in from Dr. Siler because he explained it much better than I just did. When you go into a high intensity session, there's two ways of uh, regulating it. The one is to say, I have a, a specific power or pace that I'm going to hold. So you go in there, you go into the session with this kind of anxiety that, man, I hope I can hold those 385 watts, you know. And then the other way is to say, I'm going to go in and I'm going to go on feel and it's going to, I want it to feel hard, but manageable for four times eight minutes. And that's what I'm going to do. Well, these are two very different psychological approaches. And I think both of them have their place. In a build part of the season when you just want continuity, you want to do the work, like I, I've said this with my daughter, I said, look, just go on feel. Just, you know, but let's keep heart rate below zone five. I want you to don't get above about 93%. You know, so we're going to try to be in that zone four that I talk about in a five zone model. But just go on feel and don't worry about the, the speed on the treadmill or on the track because that that can often become very psychologically you know, almost damaging you know if you don't hit those exact paces every time you do a hard session versus the the you know where you say i'm getting ready for this race i need to hold this power this is my time trial power uh, you know where you're very external load focused and and there's a place for both but i think it's probably a good idea to mix it up a bit I had on our list here talking about lactate clearance with time trials, but we kind of covered that. That's maximized just below your anaerobic threshold. So there's another example of hitting the top end of the range. You might actually be decreasing your lactate clearance, not training that system as well. So it was 90%? 95. 90, about 95% is where you want to hit. If you are a pure time trialist doing that work at low cadence, mm really good if you're a crit rider doing that work at low cadence not so good not so good <laughs> unless you race crits by breaking away and just trying to sure trying to time trial away and that is still i think i've told this story but one of my all-time favorite moments ever in a crit which this is back in the 90s when they allowed just about everything and i lined up in a crit with a guy from a town a couple towns over from where i lived who he had unique ideas and he decided in this crit he was going to break away and win this crit solo so he showed up on his road bike with a rear disc ah and a nice. front disc oh wow nice very nice which they used to allow wow so we started he sprinted he got way ahead of the field he got to the first corner leaned over his bike didn't turn at all he went into the hay bale, and we never saw him oh, again. Right. That's fantastic. And his name was? 
I am not telling you. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we just talked about that sort of gains for time trialists. But I don't want to overemphasize that. That is great training for them. But if you want to be a good time trialist or a good breakaway rider, you also need to do significant work a little bit above that threshold. And that's where you start training your ability to suffer that pain, to handle that that intensity. Because if you are doing anything shorter than a one-hour time trial, you want to perform well, yes, you are going to have to do that time trial a little above threshold, Mm -hmm. especially if you're doing a 20-minute. So let's say your anaerobic threshold or your FTP is 280. If you're doing a 20-minute time trial, you're probably going to target somewhere around 300, 310 watts. So you do need to do work where you learn how to tolerate that sort of pain. Chris and I just talked a lot about the ranges for lower intensity work. For higher intensity work, let's use a clip from episode 80 with Sepp Koos, a pro on Team Jumbo Visma. More than many of the pros we've talked with, Sepp is all about using power numbers when he trains. But notice that he still seeks certain feels and ranges. It's not a harder is better approach. Now, what about, I, I don't know what type of intervals you do, but what about uh, shorter, like VO2 max intervals? So something yeah. that kind of two yeah, so that's, range. That's what I was going to also mention. So for a VO2, for example, that's just, yeah, I'd never feel good during those. And those are pretty much, I feel pretty much all out to truly get the VO2 effect. So that is also just based on, yeah, what I what I perceive the effort to be, and then also what what kind of number I I know I should be at, but they never feel like they feel completely different from a threshold effort to me because it's five minutes full gas basically, and then recovering. So, so fair enough. So you said it feels different. How do they <clears throat> feel different? Threshold, for example, feels feels controlled, repeatable. You have more, I guess, mental mental clarity for for your technique and your, your shifting and looking up the road. So I think those are, those are markers for me that I say, okay, I'm in, I'm in a good, good place right now. Um, this is a good pace or a good power. And then for a, for a VO2 effort, for example, which you're, you're kind of reaching for, you know, those, those components like your, your cadence, your gear choice, your technique, that all starts to, to fade a bit as that effort gets harder. But then again, that, that goes to show what your what zones you're most comfortable in. So if you're, you know, if you've been training that, let's say that VO2 number for a while, you're going to be much more comfortable in it and you're going to be able to execute all these, I guess, techniques. And then if you're not comfortable in that zone, you're going to start to, to fade a bit technique wise, which I think a lot of people overlook. And that's not necessarily a bad thing what missing your the losing a bit of the technique yeah in those intervals i mean i ideally you'd have full control in every every zone you know and yeah i'd say for me if if i'm training one not one zone but one i guess type of effort for for a extended period of time i i feel more in control and i feel okay i can you know play around a bit more in this zone but if it's like oh this is the first time i've done a threshold workout in a week it feels very foreign and and those things like 
feel like your respiration rate or your sitting, standing, all those things start to feel a bit more like out of control, I guess, or something that you're chasing a bit rather than firmly in control of. Do you ever do kind of shorter Tabata style intervals, like 40, 20s, 20, 10s? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that. I usually do a lot of like 30, 30s just because they're mentally a bit easier for me than 40, 20. What's the, what are you seeking with those? Like just clearing, clearing lactate. Yeah. So, but yeah. is it just all out or are you still doing no. any sort of pacing? Yeah. So yeah, definitely pacing. And then, you know, on the, on the off, not letting it drop off at all, really like keeping it at a, like a, a whatever high zone two, I guess you could say. Yeah. Not, not full, full recovery really. So 540, 290, 500, you know, I'll know with a very firm floor of the, of the interval, but nothing. But so even for something that short and that intense, you're still keeping an eye on your power and trying oh, to yeah. sustain it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'd, I don't think anything I go really off of feel. It's pretty much all. All power. I'm yeah. Impressed. Yeah. And is it just as high a power you can, as you can hit? Or when you're, for example, doing the 30-30s, are you trying to keep a consistent power? Yeah, that, that's all of them? Pretty, pretty consistent. Yeah. Yeah. Try to keep them all the same, same power. Yeah, I guess... I guess like a 30 second sprint would be the only thing that's purely feel based just cause you're, it's all out. Yeah. I'd say everything else for me is pretty, pretty measured, but I, I do love doing that kind of stuff. The more up down, even in my longer intervals, I, I rarely do one, one level power, which I mean, that's also my racing, I guess. That's your style. style. Yeah. Let's return to the conversation where Chris brings up another factor with the high intensity work. Early on, you brought up the the dangers of the sympathetic stress of riding uh, in at higher intensities. Are there are there any others that we should uh, mention here? Yeah, there actually is one other worth bringing up, Chris. Um, and we talked about this in a couple episodes, and particularly episode eighty two, where we talked about the whole immunology side, what's going on physiologically when we adapt as we go harder we do start accumulating reactive oxygen. So we get oxidative damage. ROS does some damage. It, it increases the length of time that you need in order to be able to recover from any sort of work. And you do start accumulating ROS at lower intensity. So that sympathetic damage or, or effect that we were talking about, that's at really high intensity. ROS you will see at, at some of the, the lower intensities. So sometimes when you're going harder, you are really not, seen any more gains in the systems, the energy systems you're trying to train, but you're accumulating more ROS. So all you're doing is just increasing the time it takes to recover. And this is one of the reasons is also you need to be careful about always seeing what pros are doing and following the pro example, because there, there are several studies with pros showing that they uh, develop these amazing abilities to tolerate ROS. Mm -hmm. And the rest of us don't have that. So more amateur, less experienced riders, they start going hard. They start doing some intensity. They're accumulating a ton of ROS, and that's why the next day they're they're feeling pretty crappy. Mm -hmm. Great study showing pros when they they did a four or five day stage race. They actually their their ability to handle ROS was so good. You saw a net decrease over the course of the race as opposed to an increase. Where if you took a, a relatively new cyclist, put them in the same scenario, they just get overwhelmed. 
So that's another good reason for what we talked about. Pros can do these very powerful rides right around that that um, aerobic threshold and maybe go a little bit over and handle it. For a less experienced rider, you're going to see a lot more damage for the gains than a pro might see. Right. Speaking of which, we, we tend to think of pros as uh, machines in some way. They are... Um, capable of amazing things and capable of tolerating a lot of volume and, and uh, intensity all at the same time. The rest of us, however, were not machines. And I think you wanted to end with talking about that point and, and emphasizing that because of that, uh, we, it goes back to the question of where to train within these ranges. I think that's a great point. And I think this is the most important takeaway of why we really want to get across this message that it is a range and use the range don't ride the edges of the range let's get back to our interview with sep where he describes how he paces his training intervals when you do intervals is it purely by power heart rate or is there a feel component for me i it's usually just by by power only um i've never done done heart rate yeah i usually set myself up with with numbers that are pretty, pretty doable. Never really reaching for a, for a number. I mean, you know, some days will be harder than others, but yeah, the way I do the intervals, I go into them knowing, yeah, this is a, a number or, you know, perceived exertion that, that is not, not easy, but something that's attainable and repeatable day to day or interval to interval. So yeah, it's, it's hard to describe it, but I'd say at, at the end of the day, I never feel like, oh, that was a, a 10 out of 10, just awful awful day hard at the end of the day it's like oh that was maybe a maybe eight out of ten difficulty but i could do it again tomorrow so i'd say that's my my general you know feeling right you said you you're going to look at the power let's say you doing intervals and you say i'm going to be doing these intervals at 400 watts mm -hmm. do you consider how you feel at all i mean if you go out and one day they're killing you another day they feel easy Mm -hmm. Do you just say, I'm going to ignore how that, how that feels and I'm going to stick with the 400 watts? Or do you um, listen to how you feel and say, maybe today I need to back down or today I can step it up a little? Yeah, I think usually if it takes me about, well, yeah, intervals, two intervals to truly feel how, how I'll feel that, that day or that, that session or whatever. So yeah, definitely if I feel like crap, I think, okay, well, what did I do? what was the what does the training looked like before what what have i been eating um and then you know i'll make a decision maybe i just shouldn't be doing the interval at all if i feel that awful or yeah maybe i should push through maybe at a lower lower power and just make that that new number the new uh you know standard for for just that day but yeah it's it's always a tough call because you always want to be at least for me i always want to be at the the top of what I, I can do, but another component is, you know, thinking, thinking big picture, the lift for later in the week or for, you know, the next week's training, what, what you need to, what you need to do, save yourself or, or right. not. So, so going through a couple different interval types, um, how are you, so when you're doing more of a threshold type workout, mm -hmm. and I don't know what sort of length thresholds, whether you're, you're, doing shorter five minutes or you you like the the 20 minute type threshold workout which which i'd love to hear but um how do you gauge 
with a threshold workout? Is is it pure power, or, or how do you know what sort of intensity to hold with that? And, and and how are you pacing yourself for the workout? Honestly, it's pretty uh, yeah ro- robotic for me. I guess I say yeah, this is this is the number, and you just you just got to do it. For me, I think there's the mental component too. It's it's hard for me just to say okay, I'm doing this number for for 20 minutes. I'm gonna say oh, I'll do three minutes this number with a minute this number for 20 minutes and then that's that's easier for me to do than just staring at a line you really are a climber you like that little bit of variability don't (laughs) you (laughs) yeah so there again you have sep coos who is a numbers guy saying he adjusts He sees how he feels, and then he adjusts the numbers. And this is important. The range changes. It changes day to day. It changes over the course of a ride or what's optimal for you. So we can say your range is 160 to 190. And some days, yeah, right at 190 is going to give you the best gains. But the next day, that might be too hard. A couple days later, that might be too easy. That's why you need to look at the range, listen to how you feel and say, I'm not feeling as good today. I'm going to drop it down. I'm going to go lower in the range. Or you can have a day where you're feeling really good and go, okay, I'm going to push it a little today. I'm going to push the upper end of that range. But if you just sit there and say, this is the number, I have to hit that number. Or let's say you're on a trainer doing intervals and you just lock in that trainer at what you think your FTP is. So let's say it's that 280 and you just go, I've got to do 280. You're having a bad day. You're a little fatigued. You're going to get disappointed because you're not going to be able to get through those intervals. They're going to feel like crap. And you're just going to say, what's wrong with me? I did 280 a week ago. Am I getting less fit? No, it varies. Last week, 280 was right. This week, maybe you should have done 270, but you need to vary it. And you know, that's a day-to-day thing, but even on the course of a ride, if you're going out doing a five-hour ride, 190 might be right at the start of that mm-hmm. ride. Mm-hmm. That might be too high at the end of that ride. And we think when we create these zones, we think of ourselves a little too much like machines. And when you start thinking about the edges, I need to sit right at the edge of my zone, then you're really turning yourself into a machine and you're not allowing that day-to-day fluctuation. A good zone model is going to allow that fluctuation. It is a range. And that's why you have to look at each day. Okay, my zone two is 160 to 190. Today, I'm closer to 160. Tomorrow, I'm closer to 190. Yeah, some people might call this the art Mm -hmm. side of of training. But what it really seems to come down to is thoughtfulness. You have to think about these things. You can't be robotic about them and just say, oh, that number was put into training peaks on my plan by my coach. I will go out and I will hit that number or else. It's You have to make an assessment of where you're at, what happened the previous day, what happened that morning, what you ate, how hot it is, how you're feeling. All of those factors come into play when you are making that judgment call on where to ride within a range, how you're feeling, how many repetitions you do of uh, intervals, all of those types of things. Once again, Dr. Steven Seiler explained a lot of this a lot better than me. Let's hear his thoughts. In a 
build part of the season when you just want continuity, you want to do the work. Like I, I've said this with my daughter, I said, look, just go on feel just, you know, but let's keep heart rate below zone five. I want you to don't get above about 93%, you know, so we're going to try to be in that zone four that I talk about in a five zone model, but just go on feel and don't worry about the, the speed on the treadmill or on the track, because that, that can often become very psychologically you know, almost damaging you know if you don't hit those exact paces every time you do a hard session versus the the you know where you say i'm getting ready for this race i need to hold this power this is my time trial power uh, you know where you're very external load focused and and there's a place for both but um, i think it's probably a good idea to mix it up a bit and don't always get caught up in your watts because you're not going to have a great day every day. Some days it's just going to be a decent day. And you just do the work and get out. You know, and, and accept that. And don't take it as a, as, a, as a crushing defeat. Because that is the nature of the beast. You're going to train 500 times this year. And they're not all going to be great. You know, I think that's part of learning to you know how training works and i know you you understand this but for young athletes and for people on you know they're like my daughter they're kind of on a general climb they're, you know they are progressing then they have this expectation that every workout is going to be a new a new top a new pr yeah. a new ftp a new five minute power you know and when that doesn't happen then they what do they do they double down instead of saying you know what i think i need some rest they say no i, I just got to go harder so this is the this is the danger that can you can easily fall into with all of that feedback of watts and so forth is that you get you start to train the metrics instead of training your body we have athletes all the time email us and say, I went out for a ride. I was trying to target X and this, it just felt really off. Something was wrong. What's going on with me? And kind of the answer here is the only thing that was wrong with you is you just didn't adjust. Yeah. You, you have you're human. to, you're human. <laughs> listen to the feel. We, we sometimes get away from the feel, but you have to listen to it. Uh, and we've been asked, so, okay, power's fluctuating. 190 is not 190 every single day. So I, I want to use heart rate, but then you have issues with heart rate where sometimes if you have some neurological fatigue, your heart rate's going to be depressed. Uh, if you're riding in the heat and you get dehydrated, your heart rate's going to spike. So you have to factor these things in too. And then, then people get kind of confused or concerned saying, but then there's no set number. Mm -hmm. How do I know where to train? And that's the feel. If you're going out and doing a ride and it's a ride you're used to and it just doesn't feel right today when you're trying to hit that number you normally hit. Turn around. Well, or, maybe turn around or it's just adjust. Yeah, right. I mean, if you feel absolutely awful and you can't, you're doing intervals and you can't hit the numbers at all and you can barely get through your first interval, yeah, you're probably fatigued. Turn around and go home. Mm -hmm. That's and, your... Yeah. Going out and doing a long ride, normally you do it at a, a, a one, 
130 heart rate, but you just, you know, it's, it's a hot day and you've hit 130 almost instantly walking out the door. Well, you can go a little higher or you walk out and you have a little bit of fatigue, but this is meant to be a harder week. Might be okay just saying today I'm going to target 125. You have to listen to that feel. I think this also goes back to something we've talked about many times before, and and that is having a purpose or a goal for each ride. And some days you will go out the door, and if your goal is that day, well, I this is a fatigue week, for example. I know that I'm actually supposed to be tired, and you go out and that's how you feel, but you know that that's right for that day, then that's okay. Whereas on other occasions that, you have to make that judgment call again based on the goal and the purpose of the ride. Range allows you to do this. So let's say your zone two is, let's give it a broader range, 180 to 240. That's Mm -hmm. a pretty big range. Right. If all you ever do is train right around 230, 240, A, you're going to have a lot of rides or you're struggling. B, you have no room for the good days. Most days, if I'm just feeling pretty normal, I might be targeting around 210. That's going to be my typical ride. Mm-hmm. If I go out one day and go, wow, legs are good, that's a day where, yeah, I'm going to be up around 230, 240. I have that room within the range to move up. I go out feeling not so great, but I still want to get the, the long ride in. That's a day where I might go, you know, 190, 200. Sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. But if you have that range, you can adjust. You can adjust a little bit how you feel. If you just say it's one number and I have to target that, you're going to have a lot of unsuccessful rides. Bam. We haven't had Colby Pierce on the show in a while, partially because he's been working hard on his new show at Fast Labs. But in episode 72, Colby shared his thoughts on zones, targeting numbers, and the art of finding the right intensity. We felt it was a great way to summarize and end this show. All mathematical models are invalid over a large enough domain. The question is, what is their domain of validity? I'm pretty sure that's more or less a direct quote of Andy. So what he's saying is, when we make a mathematical mathematical model of someone's power zones or predict what power they're going to get benefit from over a certain duration, which is what the eye levels are, then that's a model. And in some cases that model might work and it might work really well for the bell curve of athletes, but inevitably we'll find athletes that fall outside that curve. So just like any model these guys are using, whether it's the PMC, which is the mother of all models, or eye levels, uh, you have to look at those models with a bit of skepticism and you have to understand what exactly are you modeling? What are the limits of that model? What are the limits of the domain? I think they can be useful. I have used them to guide my athletes in some of their efforts and they can be a useful metric from time to time. What's your feeling about any sort of zone model, just zone models in general? Yeah. I mean, what are we talking about here? I think some of it comes down to semantics. Um, like, like I've heard you say, you know, people say I was in zone two. Well, what does that mean? And they can't really tell you. I think that zones can be a useful language. We have to have a common language to discuss intensity with our athletes. And I think zones tries to assume that language. There are problems with that language at times and there are problems with that communication. Um, so one of the biggest problems I have with it is let's say I get this question a lot with my athletes. Let's say that I ask them to do five minute intervals. Ostensibly for most athletes who are relatively fit, a five minute interval is going to be close to their VO2 max power, right? Depending on the recovery interval, just for the sake of argument, let's just say that it is. So most athletes are doing five minute intervals. They're approaching VO2 power. They're at VO2 power. But 
there's a chicken egg thing here because some athletes will say, okay, I want you to use eye levels or I want you to use whatever wizardry you're going to use with your magical laptop machine and tell me what power I should be doing, quote unquote. And my response will be, well, I don't want you to necessarily target a power on this day because particularly at this time of year, meaning March, these training days are about simply doing the work. So if we want you to do work at VO2 level on a given day, whatever your power is for that day is what it is. I want you to ride based off your perceived exertion of what VO2 is. And on one day, because you might be carrying some fatigue, maybe that's 330 watts. And maybe on another day, it's 350. And maybe on another day, it's 360. But I don't want you to stop the workout if your first two five-minute intervals are 335 and your eyeballs are bleeding and you feel as though that is your VO2 level effort for the day. That doesn't mean we're not going to get constructive work for you to finish the workout. In fact, arguably, we could be getting really, really powerful benefit from you doing a 20-minute total load at that at that wattage. So I want you to focus on RPE. So I think where things get confusing is when people are training, when a, an athlete, a coach writes a work, workout for an athlete, an athlete is training, are they really trying to achieve a certain zone on power, i.e. output during a workout? Or are they registering their own internal exertion level of that? And then when you add heart rate into that equation, which is arguably very important, Things get athletes can get really confused. So then that leads to the situation where you, Trevor, go to an athlete and say, oh, um, how was your ride the other day? And they say, I did a zone two for five hours. And you say, what does that mean? And they're like, I'm not really sure. Because at the beginning, I was doing 240 watts. And then about midway through, I was down to 200. But then my heart rate went from, you know, mid-120s up to mid-130s. And then by the end, it got kind of warm. And then, you know, we were going to stop for water. But I didn't know the guy who stopped. And I the other guy wasn't really eating. So, you know, I didn't feel like I should eat because eating is cheating. And so by the end, I was doing 190 watts. And my heart rate was floating towards the mid-140s. So what we have there is a situation where depending on you know, and then you look at their RPE. So we've got three different models going for how to track their zone that they were in. Which one are we paying attention to? So it comes down to the definition and the semantics. It comes down to clear communication with your athlete. What does the zone actually mean? Which, which, which metric are we using to track that zone? Are we using power? Are we using heart rate? Are we using perceived exertion? Three different things. Ultimately, power and heart rate are simply metrics we use to, to really see what's happening inside the athlete their adaptation and their effort for the day. That's, and power is not the goal. I have to reinforce this with my athletes all the time. Like, I don't really care how many watts you're doing, man. If yep. you're a competitive athlete, I want to see you get results. I want to see you win the races you want to win or have the best performance on your day of your race that you can have. If you're doing 289 watts or 410, I can give a shit. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or call us, leave us a voicemail. The number is 719-800-2112. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Coach Trevor Connor, Colby Pierce, Dr. Steven Seiler, Sepp Koos, Tom Scoonge, Dr. Andy Coggan, and Dr. Stephen McGregor, Hunter Allen, Sebastian Weber, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.